The Surprising Life of Freshwater Pearl Mussels. Welcome, my name is Jeanette Sutherland and I work with crofters and farmers in the Isle of Skye. In Skye, we have rivers that run through my client's ground that have an interesting inhabitant, the protected freshwater pearl mussel. Sadly, the number of rivers in Scotland that this species is found in has fallen dramatically over the last century. Shockingly, Nature Scott have calculated that this species on average became extinct from two rivers every year between 1970 and 1998, when it was granted full legal protection. Ireland also has rivers in their high nature value farmland areas with populations of freshwater pearl mussels. We are going to hear from Mary McAndrew, who is a project officer with the Pearl Mussel Project. Mary tells me more about this species' life cycle and how their success is connected to farming practices. We discuss how their project with a results-based payment has shifted the mindsets of the farmers she works with. We look forward to learning from our Irish cousins how we can help our populations of this fascinating species. Hi Mary, thanks for joining us today. Hi Jana, thank you very much for having me. Mary, do you want to introduce yourself and maybe explain your experience of working in areas with freshwater pearl mussels? Yep, sure, no problem. So my name is Mary McAndrew and I'm the catchment officer with the Freshwater Pearl Mussel Project over here in Ireland. We are a results-based project which works in eight of the top freshwater pearl mussel catchments in Ireland. We've been up and running for, oh, we're going into our fourth year now. Um, so what we do is we work with farmers in these freshwater pearl mussel areas to on a results-based programme. So the farmers get paid based on the quality of their habitat to implement measures to protect the water quality and therefore protect the freshwater pearl mussel. Um, so I have a degree in uh, sustainable agriculture So and we have uh, ecologists on our team as well. What we do is people are always surprised um, when they hear freshwater pearl mussel and rivers. They expect us to be always in the rivers and stuff, whereas we actually rarely go near the rivers. We work on the farmland with the farmers and we look at the habitats there and basically the higher the score of the habitat then the higher the quality of the water so it's just about getting farmers to see that there's a link between what goes on on the farmland on the land and how that impacts on the water quality and therefore the habitat for the freshwater pearl mussel and if there is any issues then it's just about breaking that link between what's going on on the land and how it's impacting the water quality. Um, we have over 470 farmers in the project. As I said, they're spread over eight catchments. So we work from Donegal all the way down to um, Kerry. And the reception from the farmers has been amazing. I mean, it just makes sense to them the way the programme works. And it's just, yeah, I'm just delighted with the way that they've kind of taken it on. And I mean, some of them hadn't even been aware that there was freshwater pearl mussels in the rivers. Others had been familiar, but a lot of them weren't. Um, so it's interesting for them to, to kind of, you know, to know that that is there and the impacts of not only their own farming systems, but the farming systems of the generations who have gone before them that has kind of contributed to maintaining the, the water qualities in these rivers and keeping these species there for all of these years, which is amazing. That's great. Do you want to give an example of maybe like a, a high scoring habitat that provides this high water quality in the river adjacent to it? Yeah, so uh, the way our scorecards work is 
the farmers nominate an agricultural advisor who we train up with our scorecards and they go out each year to score the farms. Um, so there's three different parts to our scorecards. The first part is our ecological integrity. So you're looking at the variety of species that are on the land, the quantity of them, if there's any negative indicators, so any invasive species or non-native plants which could contribute to bringing the score down a little bit and then also the grazing quality of the land the structure of the of the um, habitat itself so obviously you don't want golf courses or you know pool table tops you want kind of a variety of structure you know hills and hummocks and things through it so that's what we look for on the other side as well as we don't want it that it's completely not grazed either. It's like it's striking a balance between high productivity and no productivity. You know, we don't reward that either. So it's a balance in between that you're kind of there is a sweet spot, I suppose, with farming that you know you are you are getting your obviously your end product, which is your meat or whatever from it, but also that you're maintaining these habitats and they do need some sort of grazing, obviously, to kind of maintain them and keep them in the best possible way. The second part of our scorecard then is the hydrological integrity. So obviously, as I mentioned, because it's a freshwater pearl mussel, we do have to look at the contribution to watercourses and the impact of that from the habitats. So we look at if there, there is a natural watercourse or stream running alongside the plot, that can contribute to giving you a higher score. Then you're looking at on the grassland scorecard you're looking for wetland indicators so if you have rushes or some wetland indicator species like yellow flag iris or uh, marsh pennyworth or some of those that would occur in wet grasslands those would obviously contribute to giving you a higher score and then we look at drainage so drainage is kind of with the freshwater pearl mussel one of the threats is flow so when you have drains that are running directly into a watercourse, what you have in the winter when you have heavy rainfall is you have, by having that drain there, you've created a direct pathway for all of that rain and all of that water to go straight into the watercourse at a high speed. Um, and then in the summer, obviously, when there's little to no rainfall for small periods, because we live in Ireland, so it doesn't happen too often, but we get it the odd time, you have little to no rainfall or no water going into the watercourses. So what you really want is for, in a natural landscape where you have no drainage, is you have water coming at all times slowly. So the nutrients from the land, the detritus, you know, from the leaves and the dead grasses and stuff like that are going in and they're contributing to the feed systems for the watercourses. So that's obviously, when there's no drainage there, that's a natural kind of flow system that the vegetation on the land works to slow it down itself and feed it in slowly um so that's part of our scorecard then is looking at if you have free flowing drains on it where you have water going in at high speeds that would bring your score down whereas if you had no drainage or if you had put in some simple peat plugs or timber weirs or something to slow the flow then that brings up your score and then the third part is of the scorecard is any other threats so you're looking at on the grassland scorecard you're looking at things like heavy levels of scrub encroachment bracken rhododendron is a huge problem in a lot of our catchments 
So that would be an issue, um, rhododendron encroachment, poaching, poaching from feeders not being moved around properly, things like that. And then any other damaging activities. So that would be things like inappropriate use of herbicides. So if a farmer had a lot of weeds or rushes right beside a watercourse and he just went out and blanket sprayed those, obviously without obeying buffer strips and things like that, that's obviously a huge risk. So that would be a huge problem under damaging activities. Dumping, quarrying, all those things are looked at under damaging activities. On the peatland scorecard then, um, turbury would be a huge issue in some of our catchments under damaging activities. So obviously, again, that's when you have turbury, active turbury on a site, you have a huge risk. Then you have drains, obviously, because they're trying to keep the area dry for the turf. Um, so again, you have huge risks of sediment and nutrients getting into the yeah. water courses a lot quicker. And turbury um, is mechanical peat cutting, is it? Yes, sorry. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, so they're what we look at. So for a 10 out of 10 peatland or grassland, you are going to have a high number of variety of species of plants and grasses, which would be kind of evidenced by, you know, not a lot of uh, fertilizer input, um, good grazing management. You would have little to no invasive species on the plot. There would be good structure. There would be no drainage. There would obviously be no scrub encroachment, no invasive species from rhododendron or gorse or anything like that and then no damaging activities so that would be your 10 out of 10 plot basically would be that most of the the plots in our catchments would be I mean they'd be averaging you know six sevens and eights and then there's supporting actions or advice maybe something as simple as some management tweaking management advice that could help bring their score up the beauty of the results based program is when you join a project like this you're not tied into I don't know if you're familiar with Gloss um, in Scotland where you have at the beginning you sign up and your payment is 5000 and that's it for your five years. Whereas with this, your payment can change from year to year depending on what's happening on the farm. So in year one, you might be only getting a couple of grand and then you can go to your advisor, you can come to me and you can say, well, what do I do to increase my scores? How can I address these? And you put the actions in and then the advisor goes out the following year to score again and you have the opportunity then to improve your score. With the Pearl Mussel project, because again it's water quality based, we have a grassland scorecard, a peatland scorecard and a woodland or scrub scorecard. So that's on a plot basis. And then we have a whole farm assessment. So that looks at the overall farmyard if it's relevant to the farm and the catchment. We look at the drains again, so the amount of drains that might be free-flowing. We look at the risk of nutrient and sediment from livestock or vehicles to the watercourse. And we look at the flow of the drains as well going into the watercourses and whether they're vegetated or not. So if you have a drain, you might have a drain running into a watercourse, but it may be fully vegetated. So that's capturing any nutrients before it gets to the water course. So that will bring up your score. So that looks then at the overall farmyard. There's a score related then that come um, takes into account your whole habitat payment. So you have your habitat quality payment where all your plots are added together and that's your habitat quality payment. Then your whole farm assessment, you can get a 1.2, which is excellent quality. And there's a 20% extra added to your overall habitat quality payment. 
if you're getting a whole farm assessment of one, that's just your habitat quality payment as is. If you're getting a whole farm assessment of 0.6, you get 60% of your habitat quality payment. And if you get a 0.3, you get 30% of your habitat quality payment. And it's just a kind of way of focusing farmers on where the direct and biggest risk is. And then, like I said, they have they can draw down money for support and actions. So it might be fencing off a water course. It might be putting in drain blocking measures. It might be putting in drinkers. There's funding there through us for all of that. They have the year to do that. And as I said, it's scored again. And they have the opportunity to bring their scores up. So we've only had, I think, 2.3s in the project so far. One of those is spreading slurry on a peatland. And the right. other one was digging a roadway again up the side of a peatland. I mean, the thing with it is, it's all about educating farmers. I mean, there's so much information out there about what they can't do. And, you know, you can't do this and you can't do that. And reams of paper coming in through the post of all the regulations and stuff. And some of them, they just want to farm. So it's just with the results based project, it's a very simple way of focusing them on a plot level, what's going on and kind of educating them more on a one on one basis as well. Like our farmer training courses this year, we do farmer training courses each year of the project with them. It's a requirement of them being in the program to attend. So if they don't attend a farmer training meeting, they get a reduction of 10% of their habitat quality payment as well. So what we've done this year, because obviously of the COVID restrictions, we broke them into smaller groups of 15. So we had two sessions per day. They could come in the morning or the afternoon. So smaller groups out on the farm, you know, going through the whole process of scoring, what their advisor does, showing them some support actions that are in on the ground at the minute. And just a kind of an opportunity for them to chat to us face to face and you know kind of putting a face to the to the name and to the voice on the phone and stuff and that makes a huge difference I find to farmers they, they really like that kind of angle of it and yeah it's just they all say the same that, that they're getting this information now because they can see that this is the way it's coming down the line and they kind of feel that they've got a little bit of a head start getting things right you know so from that point of view I think it really does work well. Thank you very much for that whistle-stop tour of the results space per muscle scheme. And what we'll do in the information notes, we'll put links to the website so people in Scotland Perfect. can find out more. Because certainly we are at this uh, crossroads where the ex existing agri-environment schemes are quite prescriptive. But there's work that I've been involved in to see if we can have some aspect of these uh, outcome-based in future schemes. So it'll be it's interesting to hear how other countries have got on with it and which thing is nice and I think from my point of view what's really nice is that the outcome-based results schemes allow the things that are important for the environment to be clearly valued and understood to be valuable by both sides you know so I think it's it's I can see how where that the power of that comes from even from your training courses and stuff it seems excellent <laughs> Yeah, and I think the thing with it too is that it's given farmers that like the control is back with the farmer then. So it's not you're signing up to this thing and you do A, B, and C and you get your money and you pray to God you don't get an inspection for five years and the whole lot is taken off you. And that's how, like that's how it's operated, you know. And it's it's crazy, like. Whereas, you know, if they decide next, you know, this year now they're doing their plan for next year and they're thinking, you know, what I want to take that 
field out and I want to reseed it, I want to get more silage off it because I'm going to be bringing in more cattle. You know, they can ring us up and go, well, this is what I'm going to do. And, and we can go, right, that's grand. You'll probably get a score of two on that plot next year. So if they score under a four, um, there's no payment for a score under four. You only get paid from four to 10. So they can decide, okay, well, I'm getting 500 euro from the Pearl Muscle Project for that field as it is now. But if I, you know, if I reseeded, I could get, you know, 50 more bales, you know, that'll keep me going for an extra month if the winters are hard. So, and it, it doesn't affect us. I mean, we just say, yeah, well, your payment will be different next year. And that's fine. But they're making the decision themselves, you know, and they don't have to worry about me coming out next year going, what are you after doing over here? Right, well, I'm taking back all the money I've given you so far and I'm going to hit you with a 20% penalty. Like there's none of that. So it just, it gives them a bit more freedom and they can decide whether they want to, you know, stick with the environmental side of it and get the value, the payment for that, or they want to go down the more productive side and get the payment from that. But it lies with the farmer, the decision. And that's just, to me, as someone that comes from a farming background, that's just, to me, it's just, it makes sense, you know? It just makes sense. That's fantastic. So um, I thought what we'd sort of pick your brains a wee bit more about the, the mussels, because is it true that they can live up to 100 years old? Yeah, they can. They can live 100, 120 years old. And it's amazing. We found, like shells you know sometimes from birds or obviously natural predators and things or you know naturally occurring vents when you're walking along the riverbank you'll find pearl mussel shells washed up that are like the size of your the palm of your hand so the bigger they are the the older they are but i've heard a few farmers in some of our catchment tell stories about there used to be a guy from scotland that used to come over to a couple of our catchments and just sit on the side of the bank pulling pearl mussels out shucking them to get the pearl (laughs) just to be clear that's illegal now so don't be doing that Not very bad for patriots doing such (laughs) terrible things in ireland sorry about that allegedly allegedly (laughs) but yeah and another story that one of our catchments have is Again, this could well be hearsay, but apparently the pearls in the crown jewels in in London are were taken from the the catchment in Galway, one of our catchments oh. in Galway. So uh, they're phenomenal, yeah. They're just a phenomenal species. So we're just doing our best to protect them. So I'm always giving out to the farmers when we have a meet. I'm like, you don't want to be lads now. You don't want to be the ones that like destroy a hundred year old. <laughs> you know, species, like, let's just keep this going. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, the issue with it is the um, the keeping them alive to get them to the stage where they reproduce. That's where the kind of the crunch is with, with the threats to them and stuff. So I'm probably preempting one of your questions now, but I can quickly talk through the life cycle if you want. Yeah, no, do the life cycle. That'd be great. Yeah, so the way the, the freshwater pearl mussel works in the life cycle is um, they shoot flacidia, which are the eggs, up into the water column and they attach onto the gills of the passing salmon or trout where they stay attached for up to a year. Then they drop off back into the bed of the river where they just kind of bury themselves in the bed of the river where they stay for up to five years and then they kind of just pop to the surface of the bed of the river where they obviously live for 100 to 120 years just filtering the water. So they're an indication of really high quality water where they are. 
And the threats are obviously, as I said earlier, flow is one of them. But sedimentation and nutrients are other huge issues. So for those first five years, when they're lying buried in the bed of the river, where you have huge activity and, you know, a lot of sediment getting into the river, they end up getting smothered. So that's what we're trying to kind of protect them from, I suppose, in terms of just making sure that what's going on on the farmland doesn't impact on the river. And I mean, one of the things that one of our farmers said at a training course this year is, you know, like, what's the problem? Like, we've been farming in this area for years and we have the, um, like, our Mayo catchment is actually the top freshwater pearl mussel population, not only in Ireland, but in the whole of Europe. And they were kind of saying, well, sure, look, if it is the top population, you know, why do we have to do these things? Why do we have to do room blocking and things? But I suppose the thing with it is, is years ago, there wasn't machinery and stuff that there is now. So like if they were digging a drain, they were digging it with a spade. They weren't going in with a 10-ton digger and digging eight foot in two minutes. Like, So the huge differences, you know, in, in the stocking rates even and things like that. So it's just about adjusting. You know, it's not about stopping people farming or anything like that. We don't want that either because there's a value to that and a value to managing those habitats too. Um, but it's just about seeing the value of what you're doing and then also the impact of of what you're doing on the on the quality of the water um so I suppose that's the biggest thing I mean we've had we have a master's student who is kind of looking at the perceptions between gloss and results-based programs and she's interviewed a lot of our farmers and one of the things that's come up is especially with the younger farmers and you might see it over in Scotland too where you've kind of similar habitats to us is they see brown land as being bad land and the green land as being good land you know productive land and you're doing something with it and with the results-based programs where you have a score attached to it you know you can kind of see well actually there is a value on that brown land you know and one of our farmers were saying oh they used to be so embarrassed of that piece of brown land that they had and they'd be you know oh god don't tell anyone that's ours kind of thing and now it's getting I think it's a neat out of 10 or something that it it's valued at and now they're like you know it's one of their best fields so they're they're now they're proud of it you know and they haven't done anything different with it but it's just now that there's a value attached to it and it makes sense to them they have a bit of pride in it and they can see the the worth of it as well so I suppose it's just even with the results based side of things it's just attaching a value to something and showing them what it can do or what it can be you know so it's interesting from that point of view too. No, that, that, that is fascinating because I think when we were doing uh, like interviews with crofters when we were thinking about the outcome-based results and it's quite amazing how many negative perceptions that they hear all the time about farming and let's be honest it's not their type of farming but it doesn't get that message doesn't get filtered through like oh this is intensive farming and your high nature value farming isn't included in the mix so I think it's quite it's quite sad how often people with really good biodiversity on their crofts or small farms can often feel quite got at, even though they're mm-hmm. not actually <laughs> leading the problem, if you see what I mean. So yeah. I think that is something really that's the outcome-based thing is very powerful for. Well, I so, think even just from the point of view of, from public perception, is if you can say, well, you know, this field is an 8 out of 10 or a 10 out of 10, not only is it you know sequestering carbon it's 
providing improving water quality it's you know has biodiversity value for different species because of the different plants that are on it and it's also value to the farmer from a grazing point of view you know so when you can attach that to it as well from a public point of view this is what your tax money is paying for rather than oh farmers are doing nothing and you know like you said the publicity especially i've found in the last year or so i don't know if it's because of people are at home a lot more with restrictions and stuff but if you go on social media at all now it's just like every second thing is bashing farmers and you're just like no that's you know it's just such the wrong perception and again it's just education and training and farmers i think are just they're not confident enough in themselves to kind of stand up and say well you know we're doing something of complete value like here and this is what we're providing so yeah i think from going forward even with the results beside things from that point of view even you know there's huge potential there for kind of for from a public point of view than being able to see the value of it when you have a value assigned to it rather than with the prescriptive where you have your this is your money do a b and c for it whereas with this it's kind of like you can see each year as it changes you know and as their scores get higher as well farmers like oh tell me what to do next how can I get to an eight out of ten now how can I get to a nine out of ten you know so for them like it's it's great I think to give them the confidence as well in themselves like and one of the things too with the farmer training like was we work in areas that are wouldn't be high quality land in terms of like production value you know it wouldn't be all mineral soils and things like that but whereas the farmers in these areas feel like they have to compete or keep up with the guys that have the mineral soils and have the big stock numbers and you know you have your heavy Charlie cattle and it's peat soil and it rains for three days and they're gone down to their knees in muck and like I was listening to a farmer at the farm training and he's like this isn't this isn't how we can farm anymore we need to go back to the way you know my grandfather was doing it and we need to have lighter stock and then you know some of the farmers are like yeah but how can you bring the you know like we'll say for example a dexter or a Kerry cow how could you bring that down to the mark now and it only like 300 kgs and you have your big charlie that's like 700 kgs sure you'd be shamed and the farmer was like well you know obviously if you're bringing it if you if you change your system like that you're bringing it the full way through the system yourself so you would have to have you know a butcher or something at the end and you would finish them and bring them the whole way to the food to the end of the food chain yourself to kind of get the value from them but it's just interesting to see how their perceptions are changing and they're talking about it among themselves you know as well and kind of thinking how they can go back in a sense to how their grandfathers were doing it and you know the even the dual grazing kind of things that they can see the value of it now rather than having one you know pushing intensively on one type of animal or another so yeah I think that the results base kind of gives them a bit more confidence in that too if you were a crofter or a farmer in Scotland and you knew that the river on your land had freshwater pearl mussels what should you start to think about so the main thing I suppose is you're breaking the link between what's going on on the land and what's how it will impact the river so in a lot of cases just making sure you have a buffer zone in place so especially if you have cattle that are grazing close to the banks of the river you'll see yourself the damage that's been done 
and as that of those banks are breaking all of that like silt and soil is getting into the to the system and you know the potential for damaging the pearl mussel habitat then is huge again with drains our farmers here are mad for cleaning drains and if a farmer has a machine it's like once he sits in it something takes hold of him like i see here at home as well it's like once they get into the machine they can't stop it's like what will i do next what will i do next and it's just if you want to clean drains we're not saying don't clean them but what we're saying is clean a section up above upstream of the river and then leaving that little bit that's flowing directly into the water course vegetated so if there is an incident on the farm where you put out fertilizer or you know your farmyard manure or something and you get caught out and it rains at least those nutrients will be captured in that vegetated strip before they get to the water course so like even little things like that like i said earlier it's not about stopping anyone farming it's just about looking at things a little bit differently and just you know you're breaking that pathway between what's going on on the land and how it's going to impact the river you know and and simple little tweaks in most cases is is all it will take you know so they're probably the key things is the drainage and then livestock access to water courses if you have like we look at it too in terms of the level of risk and if you have only sheep on your farm they don't really stand in water courses they'll walk through them and they'll take a drink but they'll keep going so there might be very little visible damage along the water course so that's fine we don't expect you to fence acres of river then when there's no visible damage whereas when you have cattle they'll stand the river all day like and you will visibly see them the muck and the the bank poaching and things like that so it's just again fencing that off from them and reducing their level of access to it so like yeah simple measures like that are probably the biggest thing so like i said flow nutrients and sediment are the biggest threat to the freshwater pearl mussel so when you're breaking those links you're having a huge impact then on the water courses i mean it's it's using common sense i suppose too that if you have cattle that you don't want to get there but you can see heavy scrub you know that you can cut that back it's hugely important when you were talking about, about drainage before there's obviously keeping the vegetation and the bit of the drain nearest the water course but earlier on you mentioned some more sort of capital things that you can do for drains like blocking them and things do you want to explain a little bit more about that yeah so um a couple of the measures that we have where farmers would have free-flowing drains so there would be no vegetation at all in them flowing directly into the water course so in order to break the link between those you could put in some timber weirs or peat plugs so it's just a matter of kind of creating an artificial kind of block until the land itself can vegetate so one of our farms actually last spring they put in timber weirs because they had a huge drain flowing directly into the main water course So they just put in a simple, a series of simple timber weirs up along the drain, which is just basically some marine ply with a little V-notch in the centre of it so the water can still flow through it. And any silt or anything like that that's flowing down is captured behind those timber weirs and builds up. So within two months, the difference was just unbelievable in the amount of sediment that was captured 
on those so as the water flows through each of those sections you know it's been all of that silt has been filtered out and it's already started to vegetate over the top of it too where the water has been captured and we had some of the farmers down there for a farm visit this year and they just they couldn't get over like the difference in a year you know of that simple measure and it's recovering the vegetation either side of it as well and it has no actual impact on stock grazing or on the habitat itself all you're doing is you're returning it to its natural state so you're just kind of giving it a little bit of a hand until it can return to its natural state itself where the vegetation will take over and do what the timber weirs are doing at the minute um, in, in terms of catching sediment and nutrients I think there's a perception with farmers when we mentioned drain blocking. I'm not sure if it's the same over there, where they kind of think they want to flood the place and oh, it's going to be a swimming pool and we'll never be able to graze it or walk on it again. It's terrible. And that's not the case at all. I mean, we have pilot farm up in Donegal. If anyone follows our social media, our Facebook pages, we've put a lot of pictures up there of them. And it's a nine hectare plot that was active terbury. And the farmer, he blocked nearly two kilometers of drains on it. Now, these were deep drains, like they were six or seven foot deep. And again, it was just a matter of taking the peat from the side of it and using those as a bund in place up along to kind of, again, slow the flow and hold the water. And there's like, no, the water's held in the drain, but it's not like flooding the land. And you can already see where the turbury within a year you can already see where the active turbery was has started to revegetate and it's just it's amazing and it's amazing for the farmers to see it too and it's safer for stock as well because he had sheep on it and there was kind of sections that he couldn't get to because or the stock couldn't get to because of the way the drains were whereas now they have all of these crossing points with the peat and again what some of the concerns from the farmers would be well if I had peat plugs in and I had cattle, you know, and they stood on them, they'd be gone. But there is, you know, funding there as well for livestock bridges and things like that. Some of our farmers have put in concrete slabs and stuff to, to help the cattle across. So the thing with it is, I suppose, with the actions as well, is every farm is different, you know. So going away from the prescriptive thing and looking at Yes, we have a list of actions there that you can draw down from, but if a farmer has a better idea, you know, for a solution to a problem, and more often than not they do because they're looking at the place every day, then we have no problem funding that for them either, you know. So it's more about, again, like I said earlier, it's giving control back to the farmer. So, yeah, um, I suppose that's really on the, the peat plugs there. They are interesting. And again, like I said, it's only it's putting these measures in place just to until the vegetation recovers and the vegetation does the does the job of the timber weirs or the peat plugs again eventually. That's fantastic. Right. So uh, just to draw it all together. So we've, we've learned that mussels can live a very long time. They can live up to 100 years. If we had a time machine and we went forward 100 years, what would you like to see to ensure that when we visited that future time that there'd still be freshwater pearl mussels in the rivers? That's a good question. <laughs> what I would like to see going forward is more results-based programmes rolled out because I really feel like that's how you get the engagement with farmers and 
educating them on like no, no farmer wants to be the one responsible for for you know causing the decline of a species or anything like that and they don't deliberately go out in the morning and go how can I wreck the environment today you know it's it's about education and it's about each one of them understanding that their little bit does have an impact you know that it's not a case of well I'm only doing this little thing and John up the road is doing way worse than me so I'll just continue doing my little thing but if everyone has that opinion then that that all those little things add up into a huge thing so I suppose education and more results-based programs wider rollout of results-based programs because I feel that's the only way that you're going to get a huge take-up in in the environmental side of things and from a farmer's point of view it just makes so much sense you know we've had farmers tell us you know it's so nice then rather than everyone come and go on right well you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do the other thing instead of that it's like well you can do this if you want yeah that's no problem but this is the impact of it and then you know like I said I've said it a few times now is that it's all in the farmer's control and it's just once they're educated and they understand what's happening and, and how they impact on the water quality because they're all thrilled that they're you know and like we've done outreach in schools in Kerry where um some of our colleagues have gone into the schools and and talked through with the kids you know the the life cycle of the pearl mussel and how it works and everything and we got messages from farmers after saying you know they sat around the dinner table and the kids were telling them like this is what happens with the pearl mussel and we can't do this and we can't do that and I think that's a huge impact too is like that if the kids see it happening and they see how it works and they'll <laughs> they'll be the one to pull the parents back and kind of going well you can't do that you know um so yeah I think just education is hugely important as well in terms of that this species is here like the amount of people that don't know that this species exists or that it's an endangered species and on the you know decline list with the EU and it's just a phenomenal like species I mean our colleague um, that does the PR and stuff always says, you know, it's not as glamorous as like a tiger or a bear or anything, but like it, it's doing huge work all the same, you know, in filtering and all of the work it does in the in the watercourses, in the riverbeds. Um, but yeah, I think that definitely education and more kind of focus on results based side of things would be hugely important going forward to have any chance of these species surviving for like another 100 120 years excellent oh well thank you very much for your time today really really appreciate it Mary. no problem thank you for having me